we had our first sit down meeting and he was going over the numbers. He was going over equity percent, you know, just all the variables, ins and outs of everything. And I turned him down and I said, this at this point in my life does not feel right for me. I don't think based off where I'm at with all the projects, this was in the height of the NFT market. And I literally did not have the time, energy or willpower to take on any more projects or ventures at that point. So I just said, I cannot do this. And I thought that would be the end of the relationship. He would, we'd just shake hands and never talk again. One month or two went by, we didn't see each other. I saw him at a um, art event that I was at, gave me a hug. We talked for six hours. He's one of my best friends on this planet to this day. Mm -hmm. Like, so people will respect you more, I find, for saying you can't do something or saying you're, it's now is not the right time for you to do something rather than jumping into something that you're not knowing you're not able to actually give it your hundred percent or to put all that would be required of you into that. Yeah. That's wise. Yeah. That's extremely wise (laughs) because like, I I don't know if I could do that. Like even, even that's a limiting belief. That's a limiting belief. Oh man. Yeah. Good. The only like issue or the reason why I do it like that is because I think for me, the one thing that could be, or that I really take seriously about um, hedging against is I think a lot of young entrepreneurs struggle with scaling too fast and then you're over leveraged or just everything isn't lined up and you can collapse in on yourself or your organization can collapse in on itself. So I'm very focused on scaling the business very slowly, Mm. very healthily over time and doing it so that I own it outright and I'm not taking on any additional capital, which would dilute equity and whatnot. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to the Not Genius Podcast. My name is Jesse. My name is Josh. And today we're in North Jersey at Max Berg's house. Dude, what a sick house. Thank, Thank you so you much. Thank, Thank you, so- you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Shout out, Phil, for uh, introducing us. He's an amazing dude. Awesome entrepreneur. I yeah. love him. I met him in a Twitter space like a year ago, and we've kind of just been fast friends since then. Done a lot of great work together. Dude, wow. it's awesome to meet another young, like-minded entrepreneur. Early 20s, dude. It's crazy, up and coming. Everybody is just like getting younger and younger and more and more successful. It's sick. Yeah, it's. I feel like that's a byproduct of the internet in a lot of ways. Like technology shapes societies in ways that they can't perceive. Mm-hmm. And for us to grow up super hyper connected, always into an information data loop, essentially, like it makes sense that we're far more advanced than previous generations mm-hmm. because we have this infinite amount of data at our disposal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Could you share with us a little bit about, hey, where you come from, your upbringing, and how basically you were raised with maybe the entrepreneurial mindset, or did, where did that come from? Sure, definitely. So, you know, born and raised Scotch Plains, New Jersey, my whole life, which is right outside of New York, always kind of had the ability to be in New York at any moment if I really wanted to be. And I guess I'll start with the entrepreneur mindset. Where did that come from? How did that evolve? My parents are both self-employed. They're in the real estate industry. So I've kind of always watched my parents figuring out how are we going to make ends meet? What are we going to be able to do to improve their business and eventually grow it to a very successful level? And, you know, growing up, you're you're your parents' kids. You're always with them. You're always Mm -hmm. watching them, observing them. And I kind of really saw how seriously my mom and dad took business. And it gave me the mindset that, okay, I'm probably not going to work for somebody. This is what I want in life. And I knew that probably by five, six years old, that I wanted to be my own boss. And I wanted to have a company that ultimately improved the lives of other people and could add value to other people's lives. So 
in fifth grade, I was 12 years old. I started a DJ business where I would DJ like a kids clubs, kids birthday parties. And you know, like a typical kid, I blew the money. I did what I did with it. And it wasn't until eighth grade when I started buying and reselling hype clothing, streetwear, Supreme, Yeezys, Nike drops and everything that I really understood and started figuring out how to grow and scale a business. And from the time period of, let's say, 2014 to 2017, I was focused on scaling that streetwear business as fast as I could until the Supreme Louis Vuitton drop happened. And I realized that there was a very fine line or relationship between streetwear and contemporary art based off who was selling it, what platforms were selling it. And I figured if there's any gonna if there's ever gonna be a time to transition to something else, now is it gonna be? So I started buying cause sculptures, Takashi Murat Takashi Murakami artwork, um, and some of the other stuff that I was showing you earlier, like the blotter art and whatnot. And it kind of just slowly grew and scaled from there over the last five, six years. Wow. That's super awesome, man. Damn. That's pretty crazy. So um going back to your your first business, um, how did you, as you said, 12? Yeah. As a 12-year-old, even get business? Well, like any 12-year-old, right? You you start taking things not seriously. So you're in that playful, childlike mindset of like, I'm just doing this for discovery or like, this is a game. Mm. So I got a, you know, the white clamshell, or not clamshell, but the white old MacBook mm. that was made out of plastic. And I, um you know, downloaded some DJ software, some like mixing tools and whatnot. And I just started playing around with making my own mixes, making some of my own beats. And after like two months of just running around every birthday party, every time I was with my friends, parents and whatnot, saying, oh, I'm a DJ, blah, blah, blah. Somebody, one of my friend's moms actually gave me the opportunity to DJ a kid's club. So like think um, an after school day daycare program or the parents going out on a weekend, drop your kid off there type of place. And you know, she gave me a contract two nights a week, $40 an hour. And that was in middle school. You got all the money in the world at that point. So that kind of gave me the initial starting line to have some capital in the bank, be able to figure out my next move, which was eventually streetwear. And then from there, contemporary art. How did your parents raise you in terms of like instilling entrepreneurial culture into you or what they instill into your mindset growing up that may have been different from maybe your friends? Oh, definitely. So my parents, you know, I'm an only child. So that's probably a good starting point to kind of talk about like that psychology because it's just me and them. So we've had a very atypical parent and child relationship in the sense that I've kind of always been an active partner in their mm -hmm. relationship once a certain, once I reached a certain age. So they raised me to be a problem solver, first and foremost. Like if we have an issue, we have to deal with it right now. And we have to figure out five solutions, six, whatever it is. Wow. How are we going to work through this issue and eventually solve it and get better from it? And then secondly, too, the, um, the my parents have definitely passed down their ability to just keep tunneling through anything, right? This roadblock comes up, no worries. It's not even a roadblock. Just go right through it. And you build from one to the next to the next in life. And I think that's the thing. Like my parents will never stop in terms of their dedication to what they do. And that's definitely taught me for myself to just never stop as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. So going into, let's see. So you said in high school, we were talking about it a little bit before, how you had like a successful 
business, like essentially flipping, yeah, Supreme and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Why did you choose to go to college? Well, number one, my mother never went to college. So out of her side of the family, I would be the first generation to go. So that was very important for her. She worked very, very hard for the first 15 years, 18 years of my life to ensure that I could have a college education. And I was going to take advantage of that. I got scholarships to the school that I went to. Um, so for me to graduate debt-free as well, like with scholarships in mind, it was a no-brainer to get a free education. And secondly, too, I mean, it gave me the opportunity to live in New York City finally. And that has obviously paid off tenfold because of the fact that you're always plugged into the cultural capital of the world. Mm. Um, has it been stressful? Sure. But we're almost there. I graduate May 19th. So pretty much done in a lot of ways. Let's go. Congratulations. Dude, how do you balance being a student with all the things that you do today? I mean, could you first like talk about all the things that you currently do do professionally at this very moment? Yeah. Along with school? So I'm going to answer the first part of your question first because that's just what I had in my mind going. Um, The way I've balanced it is... Freshman year and sophomore year was COVID for me. Mm. So I was not even on campus at all. So it was completely remote. Remote classes were super easy to actually do. All you had to do was log on. I am should have also said this earlier. I'm dyslexic. So I've never had a typical school experience either. I've never taken notes. I've always just sat there, paid attention, and that's it. That's that's what I do. And then obviously I do the homework and everything. But as far as like studying, I've never studied. I just retain the information once I hear it. I'm a very audible learner. So I just show up to, I never miss a class. That's first and foremost. If I miss a class, I'm really going to be very lost. So I always show up to class and then I basically just pay attention and that's it. And that's worked really well for me. I also, at a certain point over the last two years, junior year and on, have had arrangements with my professors. Like, hey, I run a business. This is what I do. I'm going to try to get all the work done on, on on in on time, but sometimes things come up, things happen, and usually they're very flexible and they'll work with me. They're usually, I think I've said this to you a little off camera before when we were talking, they're excited to work with a student because they're actually, um, if I'm taking something that they're teaching and applying it directly into mm-hmm. the real world, that's the ultimate learning example for them or an example of a student learning from them. And then for everything that I do currently, so I definitely wear a bunch of hats. I'm a part-time real estate agent. And when I say part-time, my mom is a real estate agent. She's been one for 20 years. So I got my license the weekend I graduated high school just solely to help her. If she needs me to go to a house and let an inspector in or whatnot, I'll go do that. I'll help her in any way she needs. I've also garnered my own clients, but that's mostly people who are moving out of the city in New Jersey. And then I'll just refer them to another agent just because I don't have the time to actually go through that transaction. Mm-hmm. Then I am a personal PFP investor, crypto investor, Web3 investor. Um, I'll get into that a little bit more in detail later. And I'm an art dealer. So what does that entail? It means I work or advise artists on the best way to sell their work or find the best homes for their work. What was your first piece of art that you sold and how did you go about that? So the first piece of art that I ever sold, I w- was a Ben Frost cocaine blotter edition. I actually have a different version of one in the corner of the room. And th- he's an Australian-based 
cartoon artist that essentially takes pharmaceutical packaging mm-hmm. and makes his own characters on them. So think like Ritalin boxes or stuff. He'll design little characters on them, paint little characters on them in acrylic paint. And they become very, very popular all throughout the contemporary art world. There's something about the characters that people love and there's something sought after about them. It's streetwear in a sense. It fits into that same mindset and uh, niche in a way. Mm-hmm. So that was the first piece I ever sold. How did you get like, were you in touch with him or? Were you... I, w- I actually went through a gallery that he was represented by at the time. So in art, you can go directly through the artist. Mm-hmm. You can go through a gallery or you can go through a publishing house, which would be like if a print edition or something was made, you, like Audubon Art, for instance, they're based out of uh, Amsterdam. They're the premier publishing house in the world for producing new editions of artwork. Or uh, Pace Prints, for instance, they produce great prints of uh, artwork from really high-end contemporary artists all over the world. And then, you know, you, the gallery route, galleries are essentially independent organizations, companies. So think like a car dealership or a real estate agency mm. that is either assigned a collector, you know, they either are working with a collector to sell the, that collector's collection or they're working with an artist to sell the artist's collection. Um, and obviously you can just personally sell your own artwork through an auction house or through your own online means, but that's obviously a little bit more complicated and that's why people like me are needed in the art industry to actually help facilitate these transactions and get them into the homes of people that are going to appreciate them the most. Mm. So we had talked a little bit off camera also about how important relationships and networking are in the realm of business, any type of business, and especially in professional and personal growth. Like, uh, could you share a little bit about how networking has been part of your journey and getting you to where you are today? Oh yeah, networking is everything, especially in my industry, it's a pretty small industry in the sense that you might go to 20 events in a month and you're probably going to see the same people at every event. So networking, getting familiar with people is really important, but relationships are the number one thing because you might do something for somebody right now, just help them out as a favor, or even just go and get drinks with them, catch up, meet them, get that interaction, lay that initial groundwork. And in five years, they might come back to you or six months, come back to you with a client or come back to you with deal flow that is going to open up doors for you in a new market or a new industry or wherever it might be. Um, The way I even got into the really high-end type of art dealing that I'm doing now is a friend of mine knew that I was reselling contemporary artwork on a much smaller scale and introduced me to a um, contemporary artist based out of the city that he needed help selling his work for a physical retrospective show. A retrospective show is like a look back at a 20-year 30-year time period of the artist's career and we were able to team up do that show together and we sold out um in december of 2021 the entire show within a week of meeting this client so that just shows how relationships can open the doors for people in the sense of you might be hanging with this person for a completely unrelated reason and six months from now he brings up that he knows somebody else i was um actually in a meeting for a completely unrelated investment that i was involved in and I was just explaining to the dude, oh, I'm hosting an NFT NYC event for um, my consulting company that I had last year. And he was like, oh, that's awesome. And I was explaining I needed help finding some screens, sent me the, a contact for a guy, 
the dude ultimately couldn't help me with screens, but he ended up being an artist that I'm working with to this day. Mm -hmm. So people will come out of the woodwork in all sorts of mysterious ways. So how do you go about building these relationships? Like, are you naturally an extrovert or do you have a curiosity when it comes to approaching people? How do you go about I'm actually an introvert. Really? Yeah. I struggled for a very long time going out, breaking out of my shell and meeting new people. But to a certain point after COVID, I think from, you know, COVID isolation and everything, I just realized, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I I reread The Art of War during COVID. And I think it's, I'm not going to misquote the law, but one of the laws in The Art of War is they who build fortresses don't succeed, essentially. That's the gist of the law. Don't build fortresses in your own personal life. So like always be pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, be breaking out and essentially like meet people. That That's what the meaning that I got from that law, from that book was. And that was basically, I started, I'm a big watch collector. So I started going to um, a couple FP Journ collector dinners that they had and like Red Bar in the city, New York Watches Horology Society, just certain events that are in the New York City area for watch collectors. And once I got comfortable in that, in terms of networking, I just realized, okay, I have a pretty good natural ability to talk to people. So why not do it? It's kind of fun. Mm. And now I love it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll talk to anybody. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do, where you're from. Like, if you're a human being, I wanna, I'm want i interested in having a conversation. Because ultimately, you can like learn from anybody. Mm. And that's kind of my favorite thing is like, you might go into a meeting or a interaction with somebody and think, how is this person going to help me? And by the end of it, you realize 10 different ways that they can help you or 10 different ways mm-hmm. that you guys can help each other. Yeah. So other than um, overcoming, breaking out of the, your own fortress, what are some other challenges that you faced to get where you are today? So like in 2017, I went through that whole crypto crash that essentially wiped me out 90% of my entire net worth. So I had to rebuild from 2017 through now, essentially, from the point that I was at then. And that was just a result of holding some really horrible alternative coins. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, I was 17 years old at the time. Mm. So you live and you learn. You build from there. And that was the first overcome. And obviously, working in an industry or a business that deals with such close personal relationships or the artist themselves is a product that you're selling in a way because you're selling their story, you're selling their lifestyle, who they are as a person. And people can be volatile. You know, let's just be real. Like people have their ups and downs in life. So working with running a business and making a business plan based off of a human being is very difficult when that human being has their own plans in life and wants to then go on an emotional journey or whatnot. Um, So that's difficult. But generally speaking, I'm an optimist when it comes to looking at problems. So I don't allow myself to really, I reflect on them, but I don't think of them as problems. I think of them more as just challenges that we're going to overcome. So they don't even like, when I think of it, it doesn't, it's not like a red flag is popping up problem, problem, problem. It's just, okay, how are we going to solve this? That's really what it comes down to, I guess. Um, but as we get like deeper into the conversation, I could probably think of much better specific examples. Yeah. Like, you know, for instance, a huge problem that I've actually like really 
since we're talking more about theory of things, like had to overcome and work on is my age. You know, ageism or people who are way older in an industry looking at a young newcomer coming in and being like, hey, aren't you 16? Or, you know, making it appear that I'm much younger than I really am. And then you talk to somebody for five minutes. And I think once I'm able to talk to somebody and express my opinions and articulate myself, their opinion usually does flip pretty fast. It's just getting into that initial meeting mm, or that's awesome. getting the foot into the door for that initial meeting for that to happen. Um, that's probably the biggest challenge by far, actually, now that I've had a few minutes to analyze yeah, yeah, yeah. it. I think that's like a common thing in really any industry. Yeah. And it, it is a, for me, it was like a mindset thing kind of where originally I was like, yeah, but they're going to be like, oh, how old is he? And then I realized it's like, yeah, they may think that, but if you're if you're able to prove yourself, mm-hmm. then it's like they're they're not even considering your age. They're just considering what you actually do, which is like the most important thing. Exactly, and that's why I enjoyed NFT so much because to a certain degree there was anonymous nature mm-hmm. of it. So it didn't matter how old you were, it didn't matter what you looked like, it didn't matter where you were from. You could literally just have your profile picture up. Mm-hmm. And that was your identity. So that was a very interesting or probably one of my favorite aspects of that whole industry last year or over the last couple of years is that anonymous aspect to it. Now, sure, does it lead to rug pulls and a couple bad actors doing very bad things? Yes. But I think net, you know, the net cost of it is positive. Mm. You could be like a thirteen-year-old kid from Japan. Yeah, <laughs> like, one of one of just a super genius players or you know winners of the space, if you will. Last year was a 16, 15 year old kid from Indonesia who wow. bought it the Takashi Murakami drop, got like thirty percent of the spaces, and he made seventeen million. Wow! And kid from you know, Indonesia just wrote wrote a script to bought everything. That's um, absolutely insane. So. And that's the beauty of it is that whole market was trading greed and fear, human emotions. Mm-hmm. So if you were, if you had an understanding of like basic human emotion, if people are hyping something up, you buy it mm-hmm. and then you sell it in that time frame before they fud it essentially, then you were going to do really well in that space last year. And that kid probably just saw a great opportunity. There was probably no limit on how many um, mm-hmm. whitelist entries you could apply for or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And he just exploited on that opportunity. And that's mm-hmm. what I really enjoyed about it is like the alpha that we were getting from people in Twitter spaces and everything was, you know, you'd log on and there'd be a 45 year old guy who's putting his baby to bed in London and there'd be an 18 year old kid from LA and there'd be like a 35 year old from Chicago and they'd all be working towards solving the same problem or figuring out the same thing or even just sharing information. That was a really lovely thing too because in so many industries, people are so stuffed up, buttoned up about their information. This is our proprietary whatnot. Or NFT was all open sourced, I feel. Even with this generative AI stuff that we were talking about earlier, all of those APIs are pretty much open source. So the improvement that we've been able to see in the last several months in the AI field has just been tremendous because you can train your your model with another model, pitting them against each other. And that's even been a use case. I know people have done that with ChatGPT4. They've just been tr- plugging their models into it and having ChatGPT4 improve the model, mm-hmm. which is, it's so, this arms race that we're going to be going into will revolutionize the economy, the way that we're looking at 
jobs, running businesses, interacting with each other, 10 year plus, that's the theme of the next 10 years is generative AI, um, neural networks, essentially, that will allow us to streamline a lot of these things that Mm -hmm. we have, a lot of the redundancies that we have or inefficiencies that we have in at least creating things like if you needed to prototype something, you could have it done in 30 seconds Mm -hmm. and it'll only become more and more advanced. Even with content creation, video content creation, there's prototypes now that can do five, 10 second videos that are decent fidelity. A year ago, they couldn't really get any fidelity. A year from now, they're going to be 1080p. Two years from now, they'll be 8k. Mm -hmm. And it'll be undiscernible if it was an AI generated piece of content or not. Mm. so we're really entering a new precipice of like what is possible with just a one-man show or a very small team using a very powerful tool yeah i want to go back to that topic of ageism because Mm -hmm. yesterday i had like the experience where hey you just labeled out if you get really proficient in what you know what you're talking about then all of a sudden people's perception of you like pretty much flip within the first five to ten seconds of them talking to you because then they realize oh shoot this kid actually knows what he's talking about and he has a really good shot of being successful so i really want to talk to you uh, more about like that mindset shift or building up personal confidence like what did that journey look like to feel comfortable of overcoming any type of ageism or objection of being newer into the space, breaking into something that's been around for so long. Got it. So I think going back into my career, like with my clothing resale, streetwear resale business, that that gave me the opportunity to start doing deals with people who are older than me, mm-hmm. but not older than me on a super intimidating level where they're my parents' age or my grandparents' age or significantly above that. They're 20 years old at the time, 25 years old at the time, 30 years old at the time, and I was like 15, 14 to 18 years old. So they were still kind of in that same generation mm-hmm. where it felt like, okay, this is just an older kid I'm mm-hmm. talking to. That gave me the first level of confidence to be like okay i can work with people who are older than me and it's not a big deal and then networking in the city meeting a bunch of watch collectors that are super successful very high functioning people that are all there to share their passion on a super incredible piece of art which is watches um that gave me the ability to talk about something i was very passionate about and very knowledgeable about in those types of environments with older successful individuals once I felt comfortable enough in that, I just applied that same feeling to business or meetings or networking in business where it's the, it's really the same deal. If you're knowledgeable enough on something, then you should, in your mind, have the peace of mind and clarity or the confidence to go out and speak about it. Um, and really, for the last two years, I've had no problems at all networking. I love mm-hmm. it. I'll meet anybody yeah. and just go from there. But... You know, I still run to this ageism thing where I'll be in a meeting and I can definitely tell, okay, like, you know, the, the initial handshake part, he's like, huh, this is not who I was expecting over the phone. Oh. And then within another five to 20 minutes, they're back to their normal at ease because mm-hmm. they realize, okay, you're the same person I was talking to on the phone. Just because you look so much younger doesn't change any factors. Mm-hmm. So that's usually the way I go about it. And I've never had an 
issue where I've lost the client or a job's been turned down because of my age. Yeah. So obviously the results are there to back it up. It's more so just alleviating people's early impressions. You know, people read books by covers, even though they're not supposed to. Yeah. I think that's just like the perfect um, example of limiting beliefs because mm -hmm. a lot of us coming from, you know, being super young, trying to like get into an industry and uh, make something for ourselves, we are always making up excuses of why we should not get out the door. Yeah. And right here, we're just talking about like, no, you get into it, you build some type of proficiency and you could speak knowledgeably and people can respect that. And even if you don't know something, if you if you're very determined that you're going to go get that information for them and mm -hmm. you're upfront and honest rather than trying to um, fake it till you make it, that's more respectable than fake it till you make it. And you build a much better reputation for yourself. And at the end of the day, uh, reputation is almost everything. Literally. In and business. Even, like you said, people will respect you more for just saying, I don't know. Mm. That's such the case that I have in my industry. Because if you know, I get information on an investment or information on a piece of artwork or whatever the case may be. And I say, I don't know. They love that because it's showing them that you're not bullshitting them on mm -hmm. all the information that you're telling mm -hmm. them. If you don't actually know something, be upfront about it and be very direct with the person and say, hey, look, I'll get back to you in so-and-so or, hey, I'm going to talk to this person who's an expert on it or whatnot. And people will rather hear that than hear your half-assed answer to something that you're yep. not even sure about. And if it turns out to be wrong, oh, man. then you're really yeah. tremendously screwed. Mm -hmm. um, and something else too, like that I've was a very important lesson for me to actually learn was I have my current business partner. When we first met, you know, this is a 53, 54 year old dude, very intimidating, six, six, um, just very intimidating upon the first glance standpoint, but a, you know, teddy bear in the heart type of the guy. Mm -hmm. But we had our first sit down meeting and he was going over the numbers. He was going over equity percent, you know, just all the variables, ins and outs of everything. And I turned him down and I said, this at this point in my life does not feel right for me. I don't think based off where I'm at with all the projects, this was in the height of the NFT market. And I literally did not have the time, energy, or willpower to take on any more projects or ventures at that point. So I just said, I cannot do this. And I thought that would be the end of the relationship. He would, we'd just shake hands and never talk again. One, a month or two went by, we didn't see each other. I saw him at a um, art event that I was at, gave me a hug. We talked for six hours. He's one of my best friends on this planet to this day. Mm -hmm. Like, so people will respect you more, I find, for saying you can't do something or saying you're, it's now is not the right time for you to do something rather than jumping into something that you're not knowing you're not able to actually give it your 100% mm. or to put all that would be required of you into that. Yeah. That's wise. Yeah. That's extremely wise. <laughs> because like, I, I don't know if I could do that. Like, to yes, even, even That's a limiting it. belief, bro. That's a limiting belief. Yeah. Oh, man. The, but yeah, go ahead. The only like issue or the reason why I do it like that is because I think for me, the one thing that could be or that I really take seriously about um, hedging against is I think a lot of young entrepreneurs struggle with scaling too fast and then you're over leveraged or 
just everything isn't lined up and you can collapse in on yourself or your organization can collapse in on itself. So I'm very focused on scaling the business very slowly, mm. very healthily over time and doing it so that I own it outright and I'm not taking on any additional capital, which would dilute equity and whatnot. Now, is that some like, where did you learn to do that? Did you see other people fail or did you scale too fast into something your own and then it collapsed? I have basically like, again, only child. Um, so I've watched YouTube as like my source of entertainment my whole life. Never had cable. Um, never like grew up watching Cartoon Network or that type of stuff. Mm. So it's always been like educational content. And to a large degree, like it's business educational content. So... I've always just been intaking cases, like essentially like, you know, you go to college, you get your MBA, all you do in college is case studies on companies. It, YouTube has millions of case studies on every type of company or every type of organizational structure, really any pursuit that you'd want to do out there. So I just, if I'm interested in something, I'll watch 200 hours of YouTube videos on it, get very proficient in the way that I can think about it and express myself on that particular topic. This could be for anything in life, obviously. And I just kind of go from there. Um, but learning is definitely like the basis point to everything. Having the educational framework to just be able to learn very quickly or pick up a new skill or um, knowledge basis very quickly. Have you always been very interested in learning? Yeah. I, I can't recall a time where like I haven't been fascinated by learning or books or whatnot. I'm dyslexic, so I don't read books. I listen to everything audibly. Mm. Um but I've always been listening to audiobooks my whole life, essentially, or since I think I got like my first audiobook probably second grade. Wow. So right around second grade is when the real love of knowledge and learning and reading started. Well, when you mentioned that you had like spent a lot of time on YouTube as your main form of entertainment plus education, I really resonated with that. I was just like, oh my gosh, we're cut from the same cloth. Yeah. I was like, there's a small, uh, I don't know if it's a small population, but they're just so spread out across the entire world, but they're all on the internet on like the same channels, whether it's like, oh, Graham Stephan or if it's- So like, true, yeah. Yeah, or it's like me, Kevin, or it's just like, some of these like finance YouTubers, it's just like, okay, it's 2 million people, 3 million people, but they're like, they're, mm. they're in the, they're, they come out of the woodworks. Yeah, it's such a diverse like community of watchers and people. Like Graham Stephan, I love his videos. Um, he was a big, not inspiration, but like, I guess 2018 is when I watched his yeah. first video. And it was a great platform for me to just start learning about real estate investing mm -hmm. um, from a source that wasn't my parents. My parents were not real estate investors. Mm -hmm. They're um, a real estate agent and a real estate attorney. Mm -hmm. So it's a totally different side of the industry that I never even saw about or knew about beforehand until I started watching his videos which I found to be really cool. It's so weird that I could ask this, but, um, well, it's so cool. Cause I'm like, I feel like, so you and I, you and then Lena, mm -hmm. like we're all YouTube generation people. So who <laughs> yeah. would you say are some, besides Graham Stephan are, are like some YouTubers that were almost mentors for you? Oh, that's a really great question. Actually. MKBHD. First off, he's a tech YouTuber. Um, Patrick Bavid, Patrick David Bateman mm -hmm. runs the PBD podcast. I watch that almost every day. I love that. Lex Friedman. Not so much for like business entrepreneurial pursuits, but for life. Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan. Um, the 
I love the flagrant podcast, but that's not well. Mm-hmm. You yeah, mentorship is what you asked. Yeah. Um, just trying to really like go through it in my head. Of, yeah, like, I mean, it's a visualize lot. Visualize yeah. the scroll down because I have a lot. Yeah. But Patrick Patrick David Bateman and Lex Freeman are probably my is that a totally different favorite. person than Patrick Bet David? Patrick Bet David, that's it. Thank okay. you, okay. thank yeah, you. Yeah, I yeah. pronounced it wrong. Yeah. I'm a very visual person, yeah. so to me, like thumbnails and like the profile picture is actually going to be how I'm going to remember the thing. Okay. Um, there's another great one too. That uh, I'll send you this after. Or I could just okay. look really quick now. I'll do it later. But oh, um, yeah, yeah. That's like that's so crazy that yeah. there are these people that. It's funny because I feel like that's a, almost a conversation you never have with your friends. No, it is really like is. is like just the people that. Uh, we're basically your mentors because you just consume so much of their content almost to the point where you could probably, you probably know what they're going to say before yeah. they even say it. That's really true. Actually. Like, you know, a lot of these guys, you can just anticipate their mm. opinions on something yeah. and then go from there. I like a uh, breaking points too, for the news. Okay. They're a great podcast. They do like daily news show essentially just on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So it's always been like finding alternative sources of information mm-hmm. that are a little bit outside of the mainstream. Like, do you guys remember the application Flipboard? It was pretty popular, like 2014. That was a great like alternative tech news. So that's how I found out about Bitcoin in 2013. Um, really? That's yeah. how you found out? Damn, I was on the wrong side of YouTube when I was 13. <laughs> well, it, was, it wasn't part of YouTube. It was just like a it was a, it was an app, but it fed into YouTube. Like you could link YouTube videos to it and everything. But, um, like always these like online alternative search engines, if you will, I've been like trying to utilize. You know how I found out about Bitcoin? Huh? My aunt and uncle got hijacked and this is like when they were in, uh, early on in the real estate business and it was the information inside the desktop was being held for ransom. Oh no. It was it. like five or six Bitcoin at like five six hundred dollars a pop at that time so you can kind of yeah. look back at the timeline and like oh this is at this time but it was like they were like we're not paying that uh, and it was like well it turned out that that like five six bitcoin turned out to be like several hundred thousand dollars yeah. at some other point yeah. was like, yeah that would be like four or five hundred thousand at the peak of the thing or no sixty thousand dollar times five but yeah yeah that, that's a ton i mean the value that came out of that that's where the real inflation went yeah. Like in the early days of COVID when they started printing money, quantitative easing and everything, um, was everybody just put it into, at, you know, stocks, bonds, crypto, all the um, typical investment vehicles, asset classes. That's yeah. where the inflation went to. And then it trickled down to your daily life supply chain issues. Yeah. So all this stuff on the internet, like cryptocurrencies, NFTs, initially, you know, it's just so different than running businesses where it's... contracts and transactions and it's like people i mean i guess online it's people too but it doesn't feel like that um how did you break through the barrier of like analysis paralysis and getting into crypto so early because i just like i was terrified of putting money into a virtual wallet and then losing the keys to the wallet or whatever i think i got into it too early like if that if that makes sense in terms of like i didn't even know to ask the questions that i would ask now that would make me fearful of entering an investment Um, or entering i don't even look at it as an investment i looked at it as a new technology um it's like a game you were basically buying like a playstation and i really i put together a whole powerpoint in when i was in the sixth grade and a whole strategy on how to mine bitcoin using 
um, graphics cards and a small graphics card cherry pie setup that we could have done in my basement just to start building a basis of having some Bitcoins. Because that back in the day when there wasn't too many exchanges available, it was very, very hard to actually buy Bitcoin and then to do anything with them. You couldn't transact with them. It wasn't like there were all of these centralized exchanges that there are today. So mining was actually pretty one of the most efficient ways to get coins. This is like 2013-2014 era. And I think, you know, a standard mining rig back then was like maybe 10 bucks a day in Bitcoin at like a $400 Bitcoin valuation. So, you know, it's definitely worth it in today's perspective. But back then it just made no sense. My parents didn't want this whole electric bill going up and there being computers running in the basement all the time. So that deal got or that idea got scrapped but it always in the back of my mind cryptocurrency learning about it understanding it and it really wasn't until 2015 16 when i started getting really deeply involved mm -hmm. and by 2017 you know i had a decent portfolio put together but again i wasn't asking myself the questions that i would know now or even looking at it from an investment standpoint it was just something i like a video game really still so when the 2017 market crash happened you know, I sold it when it crashed, got wiped out a lot, and rebuilt from there. Um, but rebuilding from 2017 on to now, looking and educating myself on investments and how to properly invest into things. And what are the actual questions you need to be asking yourself about an investment? Um, mm -hmm. You know, to know if it's viable or not. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's probably why I had no fear of getting into it. In the first place, because it was too young. Didn't, Didn't even know. have any fear. I just went skiing down a mountain at Park City last year, and I've never gone skiing really before that. Did not know you're not supposed to just go recklessly down a giant yeah. slope. Or else you can kill people, or you can kill yourself, or you can get terribly injured. So it's kind of the same thing. That's how I broke my leg. First time skiing, went down a... a really? I don't know the grades of like slopes yeah. or whatever, but not a beginner slope. Mm. And went right into a fence and oh. broke my leg. Oh my old gosh. I was like 13, 14 at the time. Oh, yeah, so. That's rough. Yeah, it is what it is. It's the only bone I've ever broken, so got to be lucky about that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So what are some fears that you face now on the daily? Fears. I don't necessarily know if I think of things in a fearful mindset, right? Like I have things that I look at very closely and that do keep me up at night, mm. but they're more so about the world and our generation. What keeps you make, up at night then? If that makes sense. Like, to a large degree, I really feel like the American empire is on its last legs. Um, just with everything that's going on globally, geopolitically, economically, it's apparent that China, Russia is forming themselves as a hemisphere of the world that wants mm -hmm. immense power and wants to position themselves as the global dominant superpower, mm -hmm. which is fine. Societies have orders of rise and fall. It's inevitable. In One of the best books I've ever read, um, The Changing World Order by Ray Dalio, highly recommend it, basically highlights and analyzes how societies and civilizations go through their ups and downs and the, the switchover, which is basically what we're in. We're in, a, we're in a transition of the great powers of the world from west to the east and you know i worry wanting to raise a family and wanting to do all these things in my life being a young person 
what's the next 20, 30 years going to shape up like as an American citizen? Dude, that's so crazy because this is exactly what we were talking about as we were driving over here. Oh, that's awesome. And I was like, yeah, there's this book. Like, I don't actually know anything about it. I didn't read it. But like, this is what it says. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. So Just can't recommend it enough. Mm-hmm. Really great book. He did a very good in-depth study. Um, great graphical or great like uh, charts and graphs that go along with it. So for me as a visual learner, it helped a lot to have those in front of me while I read the book. So is there anything like it's keeping you up at night for like a valid reason, but is there knowing that your mindset for like a lot of things is like, mm-hmm. okay, this exists. I like, we're going to go through it. We're going to solve yeah. it. I think largely like the theme of the 21st century is taking ownership of your personal sovereignty and kind of like taking that responsibility to do all your due diligence to say, okay, this is my plan. This is what I have to do. Nobody else is going to give me this plan and mm-hmm. allow me to, like, I'm no handouts essentially. Like, just take accountability and go for it. Because um, I feel like a lot of our generation does lack in that or lacks in the discipline to be able to then go and do stuff like that. So it's always like a lot of me being on top of myself. Mm-hmm. to then just push and break through that um because i ultimately do feel that if i take control of my personal sovereignty mm-hmm. that'll give me the tools i need to position myself around you know or position myself how i need to be positioned over the next 50 60 70 years like i don't look as at money as the goal you know the thing that i should have i look at it as literally just a tool to aggregate more resources with and then use those resources to shape a world view or a world for me in the particular way I need it to be. Mm-hmm. So that's it's really like how I look at that type of stuff. Um, but that's that that is my biggest fear is like our generation and like the world's changing world order over the next 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. I know it's like very esoteric, but <laughs> that's cool. Those are the two biggest things mm-hmm. in my mind. So have you established a deeper why for yourself? And if so, like, what is that deeper why? I really do believe that deeper why is to add value to the world. Like, the thing that drives me the most is how can I improve other people's lives or how can I improve, like, the people around me's lives the most, right? Like, I want to allow everybody that I work with to actualize their next level. Mm-hmm. So I had an intern that um, worked for me for the whole summer over last year. And awesome kid. I love him to death. But it's just like when I was working with him, I didn't even necessarily care about the work that he was getting done for me. I was more looking at what's the value I can give him and improve his skill set so that the next job he goes to when he graduates college, he can actually apply that and get a better position or, you know, um, part in a company for instance, right? So it's adding skills to your employees. You don't want them to be like just tools or means to an end for you. Mm-hmm. You want them to be like actually invested into your business. So that way, like they care about the quality of the output. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about adding value to other people, what's your favorite way to pour into others or add value to other people's lives? Meet them where they're at, right? Like first off, like to have a conversation with somebody figure out where they're at in life and what they're going through. Cause like everybody's situation is so different. I'm, you know, 22 and I've realized I'm probably very highly removed from like 
the problems and concerns of most of my generation. Yeah. So it's like, I have to be very aware and apparent of like, okay, what does this person need? Not what I need right now. Cause like my problem set is totally different. Mm. So you meet them, you figure out what they needed. I'm not going to go into his particular case, but like you come up with a plan then. It's like solving any problem in life. You come up with this, you know, you break mm-hmm. it down into steps. Each step is a certain percent of solving that actual equation. And you just, you then do it with them. Not like holding their hand, mm-hmm. but hey, every week or two, how's this going for you? You know, any updates on this? Is there anything more you'd like me to look into for you or help you out with? Or do you need me to call somebody for you? Right? I mean, kind of just, if you can do that for somebody they are going to give you 150% of that back into energy for you when they're working on your stuff. You know, it's not just a give-take relationship. It's a give-give relationship Mm -hmm. with employees. That's awesome. But also, too, like, you don't want somebody, if somebody doesn't show up Mm -hmm. and is, you know, not getting their work done, then, of course, that's a done deal. Mm -hmm. But if they're actually willing to put the work in in the first place, then that whole thing is possible. Mm Mm-hmm. No, that's really good because it's like really difficult in this world to find people who are reliable. Mm-hmm. It's hard to find people who actually want to work hard and chase after their dreams or even think deeper of what they want and why do they even want it. And if you can get somebody to go, you know, the multiple layers deeper to understand uh, their own why and how they want to work with other people in order to get that direction and be more collaborative versus individual like you find yourself you find yourself some gems in terms of relationships that's so true yeah like i feel almost to a certain degree some of my best friends in life are like results of me meeting people Mm -hmm. at where they need to be in life Mm -hmm. right like not me coming into the situation being like oh this is what i do but just let me observe them and then see where they're at and go from there. How is the best way for me to engage them mm-hmm. based off where they're at? And you know, um, it's probably, yeah, that's probably how I've met all of my friends, like very, very close personal friends in life mm-hmm. is just seeing where they're at and going from there. Um, but as far as like business partner selection goes, that's a completely different like equation and mindset. And you're, you're not, you might not necessarily meet somebody where they're at. You mm-hmm. might kind of just see what you can do together as a team. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any uh, business partners that you did not select well and it didn't things didn't work out? Yes. So like, you know, obviously you're not going to get everything right 100% of the time. And especially with people, you might not have the best quality data set on somebody to really know like their long term. What is the pattern of this person or the history of this person, right? Like if you're just coming into somebody's life because you just met them and you only have that first interaction plus the word of mouth from people that have known them for a year or so or whatever the case may be, that's a very, very small percentage of that person's actual life. Like do you know really what the long-term cycle of their psychology is? Do you really know how they inter- or deal with very hard challenges or persevering through things? Mm-hmm. Or do you even – are you going to know how they react when – a success actually happens are they going to double down and dig in further and say back to work or are they just going to go off for six months and party and you know live in la la land Mm -hmm. that these are the types of questions that like now i know how to ask myself but a year two years three years ago um i was just 
I didn't even know you had to ask, right? Mm. It, and that's part of being a young entrepreneur is you're going to, you're going to answer a question and five more questions you didn't even know are going to come up mm-hmm. and it's going to take you just as long to figure out those five questions. And then another five questions, you know, it's an, it's a never ending cycle, but that's what I love about it. It's nonstop problem solving and thinking through things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you say like some of the struggles that you've had with previous partners or people that you've worked with may have been like uncommunicated expectations or assumptions made that um, may have caused you guys to not be in alignment with where you guys were going? I think communication is a big thing. Definitely. Um, more so what is coming to my mind is like obscure variables that affected that personal relationship. Mm-hmm. But typically speaking, I think communication between your partners is the number one factor. Mm-hmm. Because if you're off doing one, for instance, my art business, my business partner is bi-coastal. So one minute he's in Los Angeles, one minute he's in another part of the country, in another part of the country. And I'm the one who's running the day-to-day operations on the ground. So if we're not always on the phone at least once a day for an hour, you know, 15, 20 minutes, just talking, figuring out, touching base on this is what I'm working on. This is what you're working on. Mm -hmm. This is where we're at. Great. Then the whole thing would fall apart because what if he went out for three months and did his own tangent Mm -hmm. and it completely worked against the tangent or the vertical that I was working on Mm -hmm. in New York? You don't want to work against each other. You know, you always want to be maximalizing or amplifying your um your resources essentially so like that's the system i have now have i had systems in the past that weren't as robust in terms of daily communication yes and i learned from those mistakes as a result Mm -hmm. you know so day-to-day communication i know you guys know phil and mitch Mm -hmm. i'm playing we don't have a business together currently Mm -hmm. but we are planning on starting a business together um and I'm in daily communication with them for at least mm-hmm. three hours a day. We're on Discord every mm-hmm. night, talking, figuring things out, coming up with a strategic plan for something that we're working on. Um, so, I, again, I can't preach it enough. Communication is key. I'm curious. Back to the um, personal sovereignty. Mm-hmm. What are some actionable steps that you do to kind of like rein yourself in? Right. So, I'm going to break it into two categories. Like the self mm. and then finances because okay. finances are a huge part of it. Um, so for my personal self, it's taking responsibility of things, right? Like I'm just trying to think of ways that I could say it without calling people out mm-hmm. that are probably going to watch this. But, you know, certain people in my generation mm-hmm. will complain about things, will basically talk about a problem that they're experiencing or a challenge that they're experiencing as if it's not their fault. But then when you engineer or uh, re-engineer the psychology or the steps behind why they're in that situation, Mm -hmm. they made every decision down the chain of decision-making to get into that position or to have made that mistake or bad investment, whatever it may be. It's not the market's fault. It's your fault for not making something the market wanted, Mm -hmm. right? And when I, you know, I've had investments that failed. I've had businesses that I started a camera business in high school to take photos of houses that never went anywhere with it, right? Like, so I've had things that have failed and I've taken responsibility for that and just said, okay, nobody forced me to do that. 
like I'm not going to cry for three months because I lost money. I'm just going to go right back to it. So I think that's part of it. I think another degree of it too is not sitting there waiting around for like life to come to you. Mm-hmm. You have to go to life and be like, hey man, like, like if you see something, go to it and mm-hmm. be like, I want this or I want to do this or let's work together. Mm-hmm. Don't wait for them to come to you. They're never going to come to you. Mm-hmm. You know, like every client that I've ever wanted to work with, I went to and said, hi, I'd like to work with you. Mm-hmm. It, I did not. How are they going to find me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that degree of of like thinking of things and then from the finance standpoint it's being very fiscally responsible right we live in a we live in a world that's built on credit cheap debt fast money um especially the last 10 years of the economy Mm -hmm. but really like you know nobody takes sovereignty for their own personal spending go run up credit card bills on a night out at the club you know partying while you have student loan debt or this and that and the third and again, I do recognize I'm very fortunate to not have student loan debt, but at the end of the day, you, if you were like a young person making a certain level of income, don't blow it all. Mm-hmm. Save some of it because your time value of money is more tremendous or more valuable now than it will ever be for the rest of your life. So like, you know, I think it's the statistic is like 80% of Americans can't afford a $400 emergency expense. If you if we educated people at a young age to take responsibility for their personal finances and save money, have an emergency fund, mm-hmm. have all of these robust systems that really anybody, everybody should have, I don't think we'd have a lot of these very, very um, macro-based financial issues that we're experiencing mm-hmm. now in the economy. I think there'd be a lot more stability and strength in the system if we just educated from a young age and went on like mm-hmm. that um crypto is another part of it too like you know cold storing crypto for me is a part way that i can take my personal sovereignty back is it's not a nobody knows that that's there right and that's the whole point of crypto is it's anonymous it's a libertarian dream of essentially like government free money or money that's free of government control so that's one way i like to do it and also you know, alternative assets as well. Gold, watches, things that are very easily transportable and movable um, at a moment's notice, essentially. I think this is the first time we've heard the term personal sovereignty on this podcast, or at least in my life. So could you like define just personal sovereignty? Got it. So think of like a nation state, right? That's mm-hmm. a sovereign entity, right? It has its like own right. It has its own it's its own organization. Like the Native Americans out west. Yeah, they they have their uh, sovereign reservations. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a similar concept, but on the individual level, right? You're taking ownership of yourself as a person. You're not part of, I mean, you know, you are an American citizen, but mm-hmm. it's like not thinking of the government as your end-all be-all. It's thinking of yourself as your end-all be-all. Mm, okay. Right? So it's a little bit of an, you know, it's an American thing. It's, it's individualistic, yeah. obviously. But I think it's a very important theme for the next half centuries to a century when we're not going to be what we once were on the world stage anymore and really figuring out, okay, well, if nobody else is going to do this for me, well, then I have to do it for myself. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to. Oh, that makes it's, a It's, it's a term that I believe came out of the crypto community, actually. Really? Yeah. Like the Bitcoin community. Uh, ethereum community i'm not like a bitcoin ethereum maximalist or anything like Mm -hmm. i don't preach any one particular coin 
Um, but it probably that's where I heard about it first several years back. Wow, that's really cool. I think personal sovereignty should uh, it, right now like the universal term that I can really relate it to is like uh, extreme ownership. You know, the, mm-hmm. based off the book by Jocko, and you know everything that happens to us, we can't we can choose one of two things, whether to be a victim of that incident or to take ownership of it and um, take it by the horns and be able to sh- shape shift our futures by it. And it, it could be a negative or positive experience just based off of how you look at it. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Right. And this is such an important thing, right? Cause I think you guys asked a few questions that I was kind of like, huh, I don't even think like that, you know, like fearful or whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. Like it's all about mental framing and anchoring to something. If you look at something as a bad thing, it's by definition a bad thing. Yeah. Perception is reality. So if if you look at something as this is a problem waiting to be solved, then it's just another math equation that's waiting to be solved. Oh, yeah. Right? So it definitely falls into literally what you just said of taking it by the horns and reining it back in. Mm-hmm. That's probably like the best definition for it actually in a lot of ways. Yeah. I like that. And that's by oh, uh, Jocko, you said the book? Jocko Willick. Yeah. Extreme yeah. Ownership. Yeah. 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 He's a former Navy SEAL guy, right? Yeah. 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 I've seen his clips on YouTube and stuff. Yeah. Very cool. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny because that's not like a new idea at all. It was just repackaged. Mm -hmm. Like I'm reading um, a book about Marcus Aurelius uh, and it just talks about the same thing, how like something that happens to you is not inherently good or bad. It's just a thing that happened. Yeah. And and then the next step is, okay, well, how are you going to internalize that? And then the last step is how are you going to react to that? Mm-hmm. That's very true. Reaction is everything in life. You know, mm-hmm. like you get knocked down horrible. If you get right back up and just keep going like nothing ever happened or, you know, acknowledge that it happened, process it, reflect on it, understand why that happened mm-hmm. and learn from it. As long as you're learning and growing, you're doing something right. It's like. In evolution, you look at the chart, it's like that chart never stands still. It's always constantly moving. And it might, you know, go back and forth, but it's moving. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you stand still from an evolutionary standpoint, you die. And like, I, that's always been something that's stuck in my mind is like, you have to just keep moving to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in business, like in the industry, you know, in the Web3 crypto space last year, or for the last three, four years, it's been a decade is a week. So you're constantly moving, running with the, with the times, running with the new mm-hmm. technology, whatever the fuck's coming out and kind of just figuring out dodging and weaving. Like, how am I going to work with this new um, innovation that just came out? How can I implement it tonight? Yeah. And kind of just keep building on, on it from there. It's a stepping stone really, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You had mentioned that you know, you run a company and then you have a partner who's like mm-hmm. twice your age, yeah. a little bit even more. But, you know, um, I'm in a very similar situation as well. And, you know, I'm more so, more or less the leader of my organization. And I see a lot of leadership qualities in which you have spoken about during this podcast. I wanted to ask from you, like, what are some of your leadership gifts, whether they are like, things that have come naturally to you or they have been like really refined over the years? I don't know if it's been refined. Yeah. You know, I'm still working on that process. Um, 
like I run, like I said, I run a very small team. The most amount of employees we ever mm-hmm. had was twelve. Mm-hmm. We're we're currently at four, so it we run a very tight ship. It's very close knit or tight knit, meaning like I'm not necessarily like bossing these people around mm-hmm. and being like, uh, you know, they're I'm on a first name basis. I'm friends with everybody, or you know, friendly with everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't like to think that I'm a hard ass or anything. Mm-hmm. But I definitely will stay on top of people to ensure that something's gonna has to get done. So accountability. Yeah, accountability. Um, honestly, like I think EQ can't be like you know emotional quotient, like emotional intelligence can't mm-hmm. be understated enough. Like just understanding like where's this person at mentally, and kind of gauging how you're gonna work mm-hmm. with them or deal with them from there. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I feel like a lot of it's just natural. Like I have. It's something I know I'm going to have to, hone, as I run bigger and bigger organizations, it's something I'm going to have to hone in on and work on my skill set for. That's part of the reason why I went to college for management in particular, mm-hmm. because, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're going to be wearing probably multiple hats at some point. Mm-hmm. Through, You're going to be the accountant for your business at some point. You're going to be the, you know, cleaner of your business at some point. You're going to do everything. Um, So for the holistic picture of something, management felt right to me. Because, hey, I'm able to really have an understanding of every hat that has to be worn in the organization and how to best help them do their job. Mm-hmm. That's really what management is. It's how am I, can I help my employees fulfill their job to their fullest ability. Mm-hmm. Um, so ask me that question again in like 10 years and I'll probably have a very different answer that'll probably be a lot more articulate and robust. Sure. But right now it's kind of mm-hmm. forming as it goes, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So where are some areas that you're um, you're currently trying to grow in? That way you don't die. In what way? Mentally, business-wise? Like um, a new vertical or... I would say I'm curious about the personal. The personal. Got it. So something I've really been doing very heavily over the last couple of um, months. I have a very interesting friend group in the city. They're all way older than me. Very successful professionals. Um, and one of them has kind of just pushing me back on everything I say, right? What do you mean by that? Even if they agree with it, they ask the why. Mm-hmm. So it makes it, it really forces me to sit there with them. I had dinner with them last night and think, okay, why am I doing this? What's my reasoning for this? How can I reflect on this? So it's like ultimately coming up with deeper analytical tools for myself to figure out certain mistakes or to figure out why I feel like I do in mentally, right? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, like, your emotional reactions to things are such a huge part of how you're going to perform. And being able to, like, not control your emotions, but work with your emotions, work inside of your emotions, is such an important advantage that you could have on other people in the marketplace. And, like, recognize this person is going to lose control of their emotions, or they're emotionally in a bias right now. They're in some type of mental fallacy bias. Mm -hmm. And be able to then work around them like in negotiations mm-hmm. and stuff you know you have your batna which is essentially like your level that you'd like to that you would fall back to and like your lowest point of that you take your ideal outcome mm-hmm. so figuring out that your opponents or the other person that you're talking to or working with mm-hmm. where they're at what their batna is and how do i get there that's an area that i'm really working on something else too is like do it right now because so many times I'll like get an idea in my head and I'll be like, oh, this is for tomorrow because I'm working on 10 things right now. 
and mostly as a result of like school, I've had a lot more free time now, which is great. It's like 30% of my schedule that opened up because mm-hmm. it's been winding down. So I'm able to just get on top of things and say, okay, I'm posting this right now. Or I'm doing this. I've really struggled with social media. It's not something I ever wanted to. I'm a very private person normally. Like this is the first interview I'm ever really doing in my whole life. Um, and it's because I've never wanted to share things on social media. You know, I did a YouTube channel once very, very briefly, like 10, almost 10 years ago in middle school, but that was 30 views a video, nothing out there. I haven't posted on a personal Instagram account other than to promote a business related event or something in four years. So I'm very private in that regard and breaking out of that comfort shell and being like, I have to grow somewhat of a personal brand and reputation Mm -hmm. to just even like be a player in the space these days makes sense, you know? Um, and also to another large degree, it's like instant validation for somebody to then like go and see your social media accounts or populate it with content versus, you know, you have followers, but there's no pictures. It's a blank profile. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's something I got to really work on and hone in on as I keep going. And ultimately too, like I run my art Instagram accounts very well, but those are not personal. Mm -hmm. So Figuring out ways to engage personally with people on Instagram is something that I'm trying to work on, actually. Mm-hmm. I just got verified yesterday, mm-hmm. but that was through, like, their new program that they have, the meta check. <laughs> paid for it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I paid for a client to get it done. Okay. And it was thousands of dollars. And I meta was only charging, like, 11 bucks. And I was like, okay, sure. That's a bargain. Because um, I remember the process we had to go through two years ago, and we did this for a client was we had to get like Forbes articles written about them, all these types of articles. That was 5000 bucks in terms of just the yeah. articles. And then paying the person who actually bribed, I guess, whoever worked for Meta on their verification service team was like pretty difficult. And mm-hmm. it cost an additional, that was like 1100 bucks. So all in, we were 67, 6800 into this. And sure, it paid off. They were verified. They gained 25,000 followers within six months after that because mm-hmm. it just boosted their algorithm presence. Mm-hmm. But um, for a personal account, like it made no sense because at the same time it was offered for me to on my personal account. And again, I haven't posted in four years on the thing, so mm-hmm. it didn't make sense. But mm-hmm. looking into it now that like I'm starting an Instagram account for Bird Kaplan Gallery, which is my um, mm-hmm. art gallery that I'm started over the last six months. That needs an Instagram presence. Mm-hmm. So now that I built a little Instagram up for that, it's probably makes sense to link it to my personal account Mm -hmm. and be like some type of cross platform between people in this business that follow me here and people who may want to follow me for another business that I'm involved in. Mm -hmm. So what are some of your professional and personal goals that you're trying to accomplish in the next like one to three years? Personally, my biggest goal is to just graduate school, Mm -hmm. be done, but that will be done by May 19th. Mm-hmm. So we're almost there from the personal standpoint and obviously keep growing, um, keep building relationships with friends and family. That's very important to me. Like I will, I have a place in the city, but I also spend a good amount of my time here because I want to be close to my family. My grandparents live 10 minutes away. My mm-hmm. cousins live 10 minutes away. Like just having that relationship with my family, continuing that's very important to me professionally it's to triple or quadruple the business within the next 12 months. Wow. On the 18 month standpoint, I would like to be down part-time in Florida with Phil and Mitch Mm -hmm. working on what we're working on behind the scenes right now. 
Mm-hmm. And then on the five-year standpoint, I would like to establish some type of international basis for myself, whether that's a property in Dubai or a property in Singapore, but a property internationally, somewhere where I can have like um, a home, an HQ outside of the US. And that's partly because, like I said earlier, personal sovereignty, I do feel like the power position of the US will change significantly over the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. And operating out of a different place might be more um, viable for certain businesses. So it's kind of just giving myself the robustness to be able to do whatever I want in 10 plus 15 plus years. Yeah. What, what's some advice that you would give to your younger self? Like the 12 year old that was starting his DJ business. Just do it. Like truly just go in, do it. Don't think about it. Just get it done because ultimately it doesn't matter how many mistakes you make. It doesn't matter how many bad things or incidents happen along the way. It matters is that you're doing it and that you're learning. And who even cares about the money? The money will come and go like anything in life. Money goes up and down. But it's that knowledge, it's that experience that's the most invaluable thing in the world. Is if you've been through X, Y, and Z five times, you're going to improve on the sixth time. Mm -hmm. Normally, you know, if you're doing it right. But, uh, yeah, you know, some people regression and everything. And even for me, you know, people have regression and stuff. Like, I'll catch myself making the same mistake twice. And then you just got to remind yourself, don't do that again. Mm-hmm. And keep going from there. Um, and also, too, not take everything as, like, life or death, right? Like, bad things, incidents will happen. Failures will happen along the way. Just roll with them. Don't, like, it's taken me a long time to get to this point where I'm so cool with, like, failure and all these types of things. It's not even that I'm cool with fate. Like, it sucks, but yeah. cool with overcoming it, right? Don't freak out about it because mm-hmm. it all, at the end of the day, if you work hard enough to achieve something, will work itself out or you'll pivot it and go to a completely new thing and that'll work out or it'll achieve, achieve even higher. So that's ultimately like what it can be. Just don't stop trying. Don't mm-hmm. stop working towards it. And it's like the venture capital approach. If you put in to enough you spread it out to enough baskets, eventually something's going to happen. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my mindset on everything. Never stop. Yeah. Never stop. Do more. Yeah. Honestly, that's that's also my mindset. Yeah. Just the same way when you were talking about your first time when you were skiing, you hit a fence and it's like, do you still ski or no? I go snowboarding now. You go snowboarding So I don't now. ski, but I snowboard. Same type of deal though. Are you going to get an Epic Pass next year? What, Epic? Oh, you. Oh, dude. <laughs> we can talk about this after the podcast. Oh, we can talk about it after the podcast. But yeah, no. Um. If people wanted to reach out to you, get connected to you, you know, talk to you more about art, crypto, anything that you're working on, where could people find you? I know you're a very private person. Great. So like I said, I'm opening up my Instagram. It's currently public for the first time in like I've ever had an Instagram. It's public. So you can find me at MixmasterMax19. You can find us on our um, business Instagram pages at Berg Kaplan Gallery and BergKaplanGallery.com. Mm-hmm. And um my Discord is maxberg.eth. I am on Discord almost 24 hours a day. I have wow. private Discord servers and everything that I do consulting on and everything. So that's also a great way to just send out a DM on there. Mm-hmm. Or Twitter. Same uh, Twitter handle, maxberg.eth. Dude, thank you so much for allowing us to come out, meet you up your place. I know that, man, it's like it's like a distant connection between me and you, but you've been so hospitable and awesome and 
it was such a great conversation getting to know you and all the things that you're working on. And I really hope that we can do stuff together in the future, whatever that may look like and how, however we can possibly support you. We would love to. Definitely. I really appreciate it. And I can't thank you guys enough for coming out here mm-hmm. and allowing me to uh, share my story a little bit. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you guys so much. Guys, this has been the Nigenius Genius Podcast. I hope you guys have a beautiful week. Start it off strong, hit it hard, and chase after your dreams. Peace out, guys. Peace.